Psalm 137 in your Bible. Psalm 137, we'll be using, well, I'll be using the Bible a lot, and you'll see them on the screen for the most part. Psalm 137. Speaking of Zion, singing of Zion, you'll notice verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, Tigris and Euphrates, of course, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing unto us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Our Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. And I pray, God, as we look into these truths, into this amazing book, I pray, God, we will hear and heed what the Holy Spirit has to say. And I pray, God, that there will be a, a stirring in our own hearts as we look at your word. We've gotten news and word of, of potential revivals in some college campuses. I pray they are real. I pray that it will be real here. I pray they'll be in our hearts. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 137 is a very powerful song about the dark, sad days of the Babylonian captivity. The ancient Jews, as you know, believed that it was written by Jeremiah. And of course, it bears some of the marks of that weeping prophet. Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. We wept when we remembered Zion. It's a mournful song, as it should be. You know, Christians are a singing people. This entire book we're looking at tonight, Psalms, is a collection of songs. It's a hymn book, the hymn book of, of the Old Testament. It's mostly hymns of praise. You know, the New Testament actually commands Christians, it commands us to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And yet here, with God's people as exiles in a foreign and pagan land, brought there as captives, as slaves, under the hand of God's own judgment, how are they supposed to sing? Verse 2, We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us, destroyed us, Required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I mean, this psalm is full of pathos and lament and grief. It's why we have in verse 1 the word wept. And you know, folks, this is expected. Three times in the Bible we read that Jesus wept. Our Lord Jesus had tears flowing down his cheeks and his face. The Bible commands us to weep with those who weep. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing at Lazarus' tomb. He wasn't weeping for himself because his friend had died. He knew that Lazarus was about to rise again from the grave. Jesus' tears, Jesus mingled his tears with their tears because he was broken for them. There are times when it is right and good and proper for the people of God to weep. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 is there's time to weep. There is a time to laugh. 
And for sure, being in exile in another land, all the way pulled out of the Holy Land and the house of God, and thus being slaves to now a pagan king, that's a time to weep and to struggle. To struggle, that is, with any kind of singing the Lord's song in a strange land. However, they would eventually sing as commanded by God. The question is, what about when the people of God are delivered from this bondage? What about when they go back to Canaan, back to the house of God, back to Jerusalem, and now should there be no more weeping, no more crying? Well, there's a psalm about that. Turn back a few pages, just a few to Psalm 126. And again, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures tonight. Psalm 126, and I want you to notice this again is a psalm about the people of God finally now, this time, being freed from their captivity in Babylon. It basically follows chronologically Psalm 137. Look at verse 1. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Wow. Now this obviously is a glorious day for these Jewish exiles. Because look, at long last, 70 years long last, God's people have been given freedom. And it's freedom to go back to the homeland, go back to Zion and the Temple Mount, which is the heart of their very faith. And rightly so, they're singing, they're rejoicing, they're being glad in the Lord and glad in now this land. The question then is why is there verse 5? Look at it. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Why is there sowing in tears still? Because if you look at this text, this context, you'll see that this is more or less a promise and a command. Why is there there this, if you go forth with weeping, bearing precious seed? Why, on the one hand, Does the psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel here mention great rejoicing, but in the very same breath, he once again comes back to tears. He comes back to sorrows because it can't just be. It can't just be the kind of labor that's involved, sowing seed. Look, sowing seed isn't any more sorrowful than is the work of reaping or gathering. In fact, if anything, it's less work. So it's not the sowing, if you will, that's sad. It's not the sowing. That it, it's not that it is much worse somehow than reaping. That one is tearful and the other one is joyful. Not at all. And you know, it's really something more obvious than that. Remember when the Lord Jesus, or rather when the Jews began this brutal captivity. Go back in your mind's eye for a moment. Their temple is now destroyed. Their houses were taken. Their families are displaced. We know about men like Daniel and so forth pulled away. And they were now brought into Babylon as as slaves. That was what we just read. That was Psalm 137. Let me remind you what Jeremiah told them 
when they went into captivity. I'm going to show it on the screen, or they will. Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's look at these verses together, would you? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens. There's the sowing. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons. And give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. Let me stop here for a minute. Think about that for a moment in this pagan land. I mean, we're, we're not even slaves. Oh, pastor, how are we ever going to make it in America, you know, as Christians? Here's what God says to his people going into Babylon. Hey, build houses. Get married. Plant gardens. Increase in fruit. Look at verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, it's on your screen, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. You see, beloved, hear this carefully. Sowing and planting is not something that is so especially sorrowful that it brings some sort of unique tears. Sowing is simply the work that must be done. Even, here it is, like in this text in Jeremiah, even when there are events in life that make us weep. In other words, the crops and the seasons are not going to wait until you solve all of your problems or finish your grief. So that not only must we go forth and sow and labor with tears in our eyes, but it's right to do so. I would argue tonight that it's even good to do so. You understand, beloved, that the Babylonian invasion was brutal beyond belief. Imagine for a moment if North Korea somehow was suddenly a superpower in the world. Let's say it was the greatest, greatest empire in the world. They would have one goal, and that would be to destroy us. So imagine if they could do what they would like to do. And suddenly, this empire decides to invade America, and it destroys our capital city. And then it carries away your children and your grandchildren captive back to Pyongyang and some other place in North Korea. If you can imagine that, you'll get an idea, if you will, of the depth and scope of Israel's affliction. Now, to be sure, they were warned about their idolatry. They were warned about their child sacrifice and their violence and their pride for 200 years that led to this point. But nevertheless, they're a broken and burdened people. And after their captivity, so brutal was it that they never ever returned to idolatry again. Not until this very day, in fact. So, it's no surprise that in the midst of this great national upheaval, God's hand is being so self-evident. You'll notice what it says again, Psalm 126, verse 1. When, when the Lord turned the captivity of Zion. You know what he's saying? He's saying all that has happened here is God's doing. Remind you again, we just read a prophecy where God himself says 70 years. That's how long it's going to take. So when God does this, never for a moment in all of their sorrow, never in that far, far away land was God not on his throne. 
Never was God not in control. All of the weeping they were doing and hanging the harps on the willows, God was always in control. He was always on the throne so that when it was time, it was time. So let's consider here some lessons about weeping. The Bible's lessons. The truth. Not what some smiling prosperity preacher says on television for money and gain. Psalm 126, verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, folks, I want to stop here for a moment, and, and let's make an obvious reminder about tears here. Again, the Bible prophesied that the Lord Jesus would be, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There are three, as we mentioned, three notable instances in the Bible where Jesus wept. He wept at Bethany, at Lazarus' grave. He wept over Jerusalem as he looked down upon them. He wept at the garden at Gethsemane, as we are told in the book of Hebrews. Some of the people thought he was Jeremiah. Who do men say that? Well, he's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Such was the nature of of Christ's, our Lord and Savior's, tears. And along with our Lord and along with the prophet Jeremiah, of course, we know that Abraham wept. The Bible says that he wept sore at the grave of Sarah at Hebron. King David wept many times during his reign. Hannah wept in her prayers. Ruth and Naomi, they both wept, lifted up their voices on that lonely road. In 2 Kings 8, verse 11, it says that Elisha settled his countenance and the man of God wept. Job said, my faith is flush with weeping. The Ephesians got down on their knees on the seashore. And the Bible says they wept and fell upon Paul's neck and wept with him. And many tears. Paul testified that he with many tears, day and night, wept for believers that he was concerned for. The woman who anointed the feet of Jesus wept, wept, and had to wipe off the tears of his feet. And so it is that you'll go through the Bible. We could do it over and over again, many of the places where the people of God, who are right in the middle of the will of God, including the Son of God himself, are seen with tears coming on their faces. As we said, the Bible admonishes us. It actually commands us to weep with other people who are weeping. And I know that there are some in this room that have wept with Brother Jeff. Not necessarily by his side, but for him and his family. I can tell you right now that I've wept. I've watched some of these scenes from Turkey. 45,000 people have died. Now, here in America, the whole world stops because someone's getting a Grammy Award or someone was offended about it. 45,000 people. Mom and I were watching some of it the other day, and, and she mentioned Dimaggio, and she wondered, because Dimaggio would now be about uh, 70 years of age, little maid that we had, Turkish maid, just wondered. It's in that same town. 
And some of them still buried alive. They're finding people now, little babies and adults, buried alive. You think about, all you have to do is look and see and think about the sorrows. Some have wept for Brother Joel, as it should be, in their prayers. The word weep is not supposed to be unfamiliar, forbidden territory for a child of God. Weeping is not a weakness. It is not a lack of faith. And as I noted, as some prosperity hucksters would claim, there's nothing weak about our Lord or Job or Paul. Sometimes the tears are meant to flow. According to Revelation, until the very end, there are seen some tears in heaven. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but you know, this is after the great white throne. And the Bible says that then God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He's wiping tears away from glorified bodies. Saints in heaven who will no doubt weep what we see at the great white throne. We shed all kinds of tears in this world, in this life. And our Lord's own tears admonishes and demonstrates this. Sometimes they're tears of burden. Sometimes they're tears of pain, literal physical pain. I have no doubt that Brother Bill has shed some tears for just the pain he's enduring. Sometimes they're tears of empathy. Weep with those who weep. Sometimes, oftentimes, they should be tears of repentance or regret. Sometimes, oftentimes, they're tears of self-pity, shallow tears of personal loss. The old nursery rhyme says, good little boys don't cry, cry, cry. Sometimes good little boys do cry, cry, cry. In the four seasons, big girls don't cry. Or let's cry, however it goes, I don't know. You're going to cry if I sing it, I promise you that. That's tears. That's the lamentation. It is part and parcel of every believer's life. And in addition to that, notice the admonition. Verse 5 again. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, folks, Jeremiah relayed the command of God to his people that even when they go into Babylon, here's what Jeremiah was told to tell them. You're going away. You're going to be stuck in this land for 70 years and you're slaves. But even in Babylon, he said, in an exile, even in heartache and heartbreak and sorrow and sadness and loss, And even though tears are coming down your face, plant your vineyards, he said. Sow your seeds. Because you know something? The Scripture does not say, he that stayeth home and weepeth shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It says you have to go forth. You still have to sow the seed, even if you're sorrowful while you're sowing the seed. Because the seed doesn't sow itself. In other words, if you're a mother and you're struggling and you're burdened about something and you're brokenhearted over that something and you have little ones, lots of simple, straightforward duties and jobs as a mother, And though the tears are filling your eyes and coming down your face because of loneliness or a burden or whatever it is, what God is saying is is go ahead and do those jobs with tears. Keep doing them. 
Keep going forth and sowing. God is going to bless those labors even as your heart is breaking, if you're doing them. Some of you old-timers here may recall a story I told here. And it was about 40-plus years ago. For reason outside, reasons outside of my control, Louise and I were wed away, led away from our youth ministry in Michigan. Rick was born there in Port Huron. We loved that place. I loved that youth group in that church. And it wasn't a choice to leave it with the consequences that were not our own of decisions other people made. So we left. And I can tell you, leaving those young people that I loved in that church was the single, the single most discouraging thing in my young 24 years for sure and for many years to follow. It was a real, real valley for me. During that time, now we left there, went back to school just to figure out what to do. I thought, I'm not going to just spin my wheels. I'll go get my master's and we'll figure out what to do. During that time, I got a night job as a janitor cleaning all kinds of buildings in the Chicago area for a cleaning company. And the economy was terrible, as you remember, 1981, 1982, and any job was a blessing. But those long nights were hard because all I could think about all night long It's very lonely. You know how night shifts are. You're by yourself out there. All I could think about was how deeply I missed the ministry and those youth, their parents, just full-time serving the Lord. And the conferences and the camps that I took them to, the Sunday school lessons I taught, the bus routes, the activities, just kept coming to mind. Because, you know, long, quiet Dark nights, tedious work, mopping, cleaning. One night, and it was right around midnight, just getting started. I was mopping and I was buffing the floors in the AAA building, AA building, auto insurance. It was just outside of Calumet City, Indiana. And all of a sudden, while I'm, sudden, while I'm mopping here just after midnight, around midnight, I notice these buses going down the road, just buses. And they were from all over the country, Ohio. Michigan, Kentucky, you could see, you know, the riding on the side, just church buses going by. And it occurred to me, I thought, what in the world? And then it occurred to me, this was a youth conference. This was the big youth conference where 7,000 teenagers came from all over the country for that summer camp and preaching and teaching. And on the really late services, which was this was, they would go out and get something to eat before they'd go to the hotels. And I stopped. And I looked through that big plate glass window and I just looked at those buses going by. And then all of a sudden, one of the buses stopped. There was a traffic light right there by the AAA building. And I looked at it and lo and behold, it was my bus with my teenagers from my church. And I looked at it and I could see them. I could see all of my youth group because the buses, the, the lights on the bus were all on. And they were laughing and they were singing, and they were fellowshipping. And as I watched them during that red light, the tears just, I mean, really was, were flowing. When the light turned green, I watched them drive away. I'm telling you, I mopped the floors that night more than ever with my own tears. I mean, just weeks before this, I made the plans for that youth conference. 
I did all of the work, the preparation for that same, very same youth conference, and I didn't get to take them. And I looked and I saw who was taking them, this punk imposter replacement loser youth pastor that they got. (laughs) No, I wasn't doing that. Just kidding. (laughs) See, Pastor, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. I cried and I kept mopping. I cried and I cried and I kept cleaning. Matter of fact, I left that building and I drove the van to the Alcoa Aluminum Building. It's up in Chicago, and with tears in my eyes, I went right back and cleaned those offices as as well. And all night long, it was just cry and mop. You know why? I had a young wife at home. I had a little baby named Ricky at home. I had seminary classes to study for and to attend. And an entirely, entirely unknown future in the will of God, potentially in His work. I didn't have this. I didn't have hardly any faith at the moment. I don't think I had an ounce of courage on those nights. I don't feel like I had any joy or victory or even, for a while, hope. But I could cry and I could mop. I could cry. I could sow in tears. So you see, folks, weeping for a believer doesn't mean defeat. It doesn't mean even despair. When I was a teenager, we used to sing that song, He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. And guess what? Look at verse 5 again. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, folks, I hope you understand that I wasn't exactly claiming these verses verses in those many months when my heart was heavy. I'll be frank with you. I wasn't spiritual enough to rest in this promise. But guess what? The promise was still true. The promise was still true. Just the fact that I sowed with tears in my eyes. They that sow in tears, what? They shall reap in joy. They that go forth... And weepeth bearing precious seed. Guess what? Doubtless, it says, they shall come again with rejoicing. Bringing his sheaves with him. In other words, the promise is that if you sow and if you bear seed, even in sorrow, if you're just faithful, and you're faithful in the midst of the weeping and the tears, the harvest is still going to come in. If I go out and I sow some watermelon seeds sometime in the spring or the beginning of the summer. Brother Mike and I go, and Mike Chung's on one side, and I'm on the other side, and Mike's shouting hallelujah, glory to God, because he's all excited about his life, and everything's good and perfect, and, you know, little Facebook perfect life he's got going on, and hallelujah, I got a raise, got this, and I'm over here weeping and crying and sorrowing because, you know, I had to spend time with Chris Griskevitz or whatever, and I'm over here, <laughs> guess what? His seeds are going to come up just like my seeds. My seeds are going to bring forth fruit. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed while you're weeping. See, that's what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, just don't quit, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. 
is what David meant when he said in Psalm 35, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. And yes, there is an actual day when the Bible says that God himself will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So, well, you're just talking about pie-in-the-sky stuff, Pastor. Can I just say this? I'm not talking about pie-in-the-sky stuff. You know, I wept, and I wept, and I wept. In fact, I, this was one of the verses I used, one of the texts I used when Louise went to heaven. But I knew this. I knew without any question that I was weeping mostly for my own loss. You know, I can tell you this right now. Visiting in hospices and hospital rooms for 40-plus years, scores and scores and scores of times, I've sat at the deathbed of somebody I knew and loved and somebody I didn't know, but other people in the room loved them. And I've watched families who know the Lord and families who don't know the Lord. And there's not a little difference between the two on a deathbed. There's not a minute difference. There is an uncrossable, unexplainable chasm of difference. One of the chaplains that I knew very well, Brother Sig, he and I were talking about this. When you visit terminal patients and you go house to house or you go room to room and you see these people and you look at yourself, you give them the Word of God or you pray with them, you see yourself as nothing but a watering can. You pour the water, the Word of God, and if there's a seed there, if there's life from the Lord there, it takes it every time and it bears fruit. But there's nothing there. Lost people. It doesn't matter how much water you pour. It just runs off. There's no comfort. There's no hope. There's no grace to bestow. I'm just saying when it, when it says that they that sow in tears shall reap in joy and shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, I know it's true. I just know it's true. I know it in here. I know it in here. But most of all, I know it in here. I know it in here. In fact, in closing... Let me give you one little example of the faithfulness of God's Word. Do you know how and why the Lord turned the captivity of Zion? Do you know how in the Bible and in history, how and why this happened? Well, if you know the history part of it, you know that King Cyrus wrote a decree. This is also in the Scriptures. He wrote a decree in his first year as the king declaring that the Jews could return and that he... And Persia would pay for it. He told them to build their wall. <laughs> and they're going to pay for it. That's remarkable enough. But do you remember why Cyrus agreed to such an astonishing act? Folks, he was a pagan king. They didn't acquiesce to anybody, especially slaves. One reason. 200 years before that captivity, there was a prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah was told by the Lord that this invasion and this exile was going to happen because the people would never repent. Every scholar knows that Isaiah lived and prophesied in the 8th century, the 8th century before Christ. So it's amazing how detailed Isaiah actually was concerning the prediction of this invasion. But that's not why Cyrus paid the Jews to return. That only happened, beloved, because thanks to Daniel, one of those slaves, and Ezekiel also, 
Someone brought the book of Isaiah to Cyrus and showed him the prophecy. For Cyrus, it's a 200-year-old prediction in which God himself is speaking. I want you to look at your screen at Isaiah 44, and I'll show you what it is. Here's verse 1, or verse 24, rather. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. God is sort of making a stand here about who he is. Verse 28, that saith of Cyrus. Now you say, Pastor, he was, this is 200 years. I know. Look at it. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to thy temple thy foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, that means chosen, who right hand I have holden, to subdue all nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Verse 4, for Jacob, my servant's sake, for Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Finally, verse 13, look at it. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let go of my captives. Not for price, nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, it really, it really gets your attention when your very name and your position is called by God centuries before you're even born. Verse 1 says of our text in Psalm 126, When, when the Lord turned, the Lord turned. God did this. When the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, it wasn't Cyrus at all. It was simply God being true to his word. The same God who promised us, not pie in the sky, but a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That God is always true to his word. Verse 2 of our text, and we'll close. For they, Psalm 126 rather, verse 2, Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the heathen said among themselves, the Lord hath done great things for them. You see, folks, over and above and beyond, sometimes because of our tears, the eternal purpose of God is so that the lost can see, hear, witness our faith. Hear our song. God hath put a new song in my mouth. They shall see it and fear the Lord. People need the Lord. And the witness of our Lord Jesus his life, the resurrected Christ, is never more powerful than when the people, for example, at Jerusalem, saw the disciples go from tears to triumph. From fear, of course they had tears. From fear to faith. And so, the lost people need to see the same from us. They need to see that in our tears, we still trust. And we still go out and sow. We still go out and sow in the midst of our tears. And God's people said, Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that you'll help us to, to embrace the truth of your word, not the pablum that's being taught, preached, handed out by a prosperity preaching that tries to teach that 
that your people are not brokenhearted. That they don't weep. And sometimes don't question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But I pray, God, that we will be your people who, in the midst of a broken heart, with tears running down our face, we still go forth and sow. We're still faithful to you and to the duties you've called us to. Even as Jesus wept looking over Jerusalem, he still went right back to the city to give his blood and life. May we be faithful as well, and we thank you for the fruit that will remain because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.